0: Welcome to The Thing About Austen, a podcast about Jane
1: Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Sir Walter's looking glasses. We are taking a look at persuasion for this episode, and specifically Taking a bit of a look at our favorite vain baronet, we are about halfway through the novel, post Louisa's ball, when Lady Russell asks Anne to accompany her to call on Mrs. Croft at Kellynch Hall, aka Anne's former home. So, <laughs> you know, possibly a little awkward. During the visit, the Admiral is discussing a few of the changes they have made Although he's very quick to assure Anne that they have made very few changes. We changed some things, but like we liked the way you had stuff. Yes, yes. In the course of that discussion, he mentions the many, many mirrors in the dressing room that was previously occupied by Sir Walter. So this is Admiral Croft talking to Anne. I have done very
0: little besides sending away some of the large looking glasses from my dressing room which was your father's. A very good man and very much the gentleman, I am sure. But I should think, Miss Elliot, looking with serious reflection, I should think he must be rather a dressy man for his time of life. Such a number of looking glasses! Oh, Lord, there was no getting away from oneself. So I got Sophie to lend me a hand, and we soon shifted their quarters. And now I am white snug with my little shaving glass in one corner and another great thing that I never go near. It's just like, I don't know what to do with all of these things.
1: I did leave one other giant mirror, but I just really try to avoid it. He's trying so hard to be like, I get it. You know, I get it. But also that was a lot. I love him. I mean, just imagine, especially like first thing in the morning. I don't want to walk into a room and just be (laughs) surrounded by mirrors. No, thank you. No one needs that 360. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we're going to start off by talking a little bit about mirrors themselves. The actual definition of mirror is any smooth surface that can produce a reflection. That means that literally any reflective surface can be a mirror. So in that way, mirrors have sort of been around for forever. Think Narcissus and all that mythology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. However, mirrors made of glass and backed with a reflective coating, the thing we most frequently consider a traditional mirror, first came into general use in the 16th century. In
0: order to get really into the details of mirrors or looking glasses like Sir Walter's, we have to start with a little history on glassmaking before we can get to those, those kind of traditional glass mirrors. So, you know, come along on this journey, my fellow glazier enthusiasts,
1: Hooray! <laughs> glass production in Europe has its own intricate history, but we'll start by talking a bit more about the process of making smooth glass sheets, like those you'd find in windows or mirrors. Flat glass was actually a challenge to make, since it was traditionally blown into spheres before it was then shaped by trained glass blowers and glaziers.
0: Before the mid-1600s, the two main methods of getting flat planes of glass were called the cylinder method or the crown method. The cylinder method starts with the molten glass on the end of a blowpipe, then it's blown and shaped into a long cylinder by rolling that molten sphere on a flat stone or metal slab while they're inflating it. Then the end of the cylinder would be cut off, and the top of the cylinder would be removed from the blowpipe then quickly they would slice up the length of the cylinder and open it up to lay flat and that would create a rectangular sheet of glass so that's that's the cylinder method
1: sounds super easy no problem <laughs> absolutely anyone can do this the crown method was a bit different but still relied on glass blowing the artisan would gather the molten glass on the blowpipe start blowing it, and then quickly spin the pipe. The centrifugal force flattened the bubble, turning it into a flat disc, around 60 inches in diameter, from which they could then cut out planes of glass. They are basically making glass pizza dough. Yes. Instead
0: of throwing it up in their air, they do it with yes. the, whole, the pipe, spin it really fast, and it's like, we've made it.
1: When you go to a pizza place and you see them tossing that dough up in the air and making... The the flat pizzas and you think, wow, that's amazing. Just imagine somebody doing that with molten, molten glass. Like that is on fire. What? Zero pressure. Very easy. Yeah. <laughs> Longtime listeners will remember me freaking out about Snapdragon. So you can only imagine how I feel about this.
0: This crown method of glass blowing, however, is what gives us that really gorgeous, unique, little bullseye looking ripple glass that you can sometimes see in historical panes of glass. You know, just it just looks like a drop of water has kind of hit the surface. And this is where the glass came off the pontil or the blowpipe. So while they're spinning it and then tap it off, that little tiny ripple is where it used to be attached to the blowpipe.
1: It's like a little fun souvenir of the process. little memento of our glassblowing adventure. hmm <laughs> Both of these methods, however, had their limitations, though... Since you could only produce smaller panes of glass, since they were still reliant on the ability to blow the materials and balance that weight with the process. These processes were also a bit fiddly, so you couldn't guarantee a perfectly smooth surface while you were manipulating the materials. Lots of variables going on when you're doing glass blowing. Yeah, again, it's like, you know, lava. <laughs> Come on. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> So in
0: 1688, French glaziers started to use a new process called casting plate glass. In this process, the molten glass is poured onto an iron table with a rectangular frame around it, and then it's kind of smoothed out by a huge copper rolling pin before it's cooled. Then they grind it and polish it into that final product. And so this process made it possible to produce much larger sheets of glass with much more consistent results.
1: So from here, we are now ready to talk about the mirror-making process. The process for making glass mirrors during this period was called the amalgam process or the amalgam mirror. This process was in general use in Europe from around the 16th century until the beginning of the 20th century. So in the early 16th
0: century, Venice became the main center for the amalgam mirror industry. Venetian mirrors were pretty much the only game in town. The Venetians guarded their mirror-making process like the industry secret it was. So for nearly two centuries, they didn't let anyone else know how they produced their fancy mirrors. They were extremely expensive and were considered the best mirrors In Europe.
1: And so because of that, there was a whole lot of drama, including corporate espionage. And suddenly at the end of the 17th century, France had the mirror making secret and the plate glass process. And they now became the mirror capital of Europe. There is for sure a movie in there somewhere. This is high drama stuff. Yes, Yes. Yeah. But now that the mirror-making secret was kind of out, it started to spread and then became fairly common knowledge. Yeah.
0: So we are here to share the secret of amalgam mirror-making. I hope you are thrilled to get this information. So this comes from Christopher Maxwell's article, People in Glass Houses, the Polished and Polite in Georgian Britain. So here's the description of that process. A thick sheet of tin foil is spread on a table and covered with mercury on which a plate of glass is laid. The plate is weighted to squeeze out the mercury and affix the foil before being moved to a rack where it is gradually raised to allow more mercury to drain. When the coating has hardened, the mirrors are leaned against a wall.
1: So the end result would be a mirror that differs just a bit from the silver mirrors that we use today. According to the article, The Tin-Mercury Mirror, Its Manufacturing Technique and Deterioration Process, quote, the tin amalgam reflects significantly less light than silver and has a bluish tint, whereas silver is slightly yellow. So that's kind of
0: how you can tell if you're looking at an antique mirror, right, is that you're getting that kind of slightly bluish. It's, it's a little bit more moody than our kind of yellowish mirrors.
1: It gives you those kind of ghosty vibes. Yes, it feels, it's very atmospheric, I
0: think. Okay, so so now that we know a little bit more about mirrors and mirror production in the 18th century, let's talk about cost. Something that Sir Walter most definitely would not have paid attention to. <laughs>
1: well, only paid attention insofar as that obviously he wants the best and most expensive things, right? Most expensive, right? <laughs> yes. It
0: doesn't even have to be the best. It just has to be the most expensive. <laughs>
1: We now know that making a larger mirror was a pretty intensive process, which results in the end product being extremely expensive. For example, from the 1757 publication, The Plate Glass Book, we learn that a modest-sized looking glass measuring 24 inches by 36 inches was estimated to have cost 6 pounds 45 shillings. From the same book, we get the cost breakdown of a much
0: larger mirror. So here's this. The cost of a finished mirror glass measuring 60 inches by 42 and a half inches was broken down as follows. Cost of rough plate, 37 pounds, 10 shillings. Excise duty, 18 pounds, 15 shillings. Grinding, seven pounds, 12 shillings, eight pence. Polishing. Seven pounds, 12 shillings, eight pence. Silvering, seven pounds, 12 shillings, eight pence. And diamond cutting, two pounds, 14 shillings. The total figure of 81 pounds, 17 shillings. That, that is expensive.
1: And just put that in context of how much money the Dashwood women, for example, have to live on per year. Yes, yeah. And to also put an exclamation point on how extravagant these mirrors could be, in 1763, the Duke of Northumberland spent 421 pounds, 9 shillings, 8 pence, for two pier glasses, the kind of mirrors usually placed between two windows, which were said at the time to be two of the largest ever seen in England. I love that distinction, like two of the largest mirrors ever seen to be seen in England. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you were putting it in context with the Dashwoods
0: income. This is almost their entire annual budget for these two mirrors. That really contextualizes the extravagant lengths you could go to to get a mirror. I mean, you could spend an entire fortune on on mirrors.
1: This was not like you're going to Target and you're buying the the mirror to hang over the back of your dorm room, you know, Mm -hmm, for $50 kind of a situation. Yeah. So Sir Walter, in case you aren't aware, is pretty vain. You know, that's kind of a core part of his personality. (laughs) Austin tells us it is the beginning and end of his character. That's about what we know about him. So it makes a lot of sense that he would be a bit obsessed with mirrors. His favorite thing is himself, basically. Yes. Yeah. And one of the things that this historical context on glassmaking really provides is a kind of multifaceted aspect to his obsession.
0: So when Admiral Croft says that there are such a number of looking glasses and that he had to have help moving them, it's fairly safe to assume that we're talking of like there's a lot of them or they're kind of heavy or both. I mean, there's a lot of mirrors here. Essentially, Admiral Croft makes it seem like it's kind of a carnival funhouse in his dressing room, especially when he says, there's no getting away from oneself. It's just like, hmm, that could be, could be a lot, you know, a lot, a lot.
1: Again, personally, for me, not what I want first thing in the morning. No, thank you. No, at
0: any point, really, thanks. Yes,
1: yes. Those mirrors and the cost likely attached to each one represent a small fortune Admiral Croft even describes one of the mirrors as a great thing, meaning it was probably such a big mirror that he couldn't move it because he's basically like, I just try to avoid that one, you know? Yeah, Yeah, he's like, I I don't know what to do
0: with that, so Mm -hmm. we're leaving it. Mm
1: -hmm. So that definitely cost a pretty penny. We don't know that Sir Walter bought all of these mirrors. You know, maybe some of them have always been part of the estate or were Mm -hmm. inherited, you know, you can say. But it seems pretty likely that he would have wanted to purchase one or two of his own fancy mirrors for his dressing room. So his obsession with mirrors is definitely also, wait for it, a reflection of his <laughs> inability to manage his finances responsibly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just just throwing money at these mirrors, for sure.
1: Well, he's certainly not selling these mirrors or, no. you know, yeah. doing anything that would possibly offset their financial situation. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the fact that there is a mirror collection in his dressing room shows that, like, even if he were being conscious of his spending, that he's still hoarding that particular mm-hmm. aspect.
1: Well, and also the fact that he left them all behind. So one would presume that when they go to bath, he's getting new mirrors for that yeah. house as well. He's <laughs> like, oh, I've got my Camden Place mirrors. So.
0: Yes, yes. So in the article, Sir Walter Elliot's Looking Glass, Mary Musgrove's Sofa, and Anne Elliot's Chair by Laurie Kaplan. I'm already into it, right? That's, that's, that's our shtick. All things we like. We do. Um, Laurie Kaplan points out that, quote, since Kellynch Hall has not one but multiple looking glasses, the implication is that the Elliots' wealth has plummeted considerably under the bad stewardship of Sir Walter, which that makes perfect sense, now that we have that context on mirrors.
1: Mirrors are also a signifier of wealth. Not only do they cost a lot of money, but they are they are a kind of conspicuous consumerism for this time. If you've got a lot of mirrors, you are trying to signal to everyone that you are very, very fancy, with refined tastes and the ability to enjoy luxury goods. Like, I can afford to buy these super expensive mirrors. Mirrors also generate more light and space in interior spaces when positioned carefully, so mirrors reflect other shiny surfaces, luxuries, etc., Reflect the fact that you have a house where you can afford to have large windows. Yeah, and it's like, you
0: know, you have mirrors and then it kind of like almost like doubles how wealthy you look because it's actually literally reflecting your wealth at least once.
1: I feel like there there was a missed opportunity in Northanger Abbey for the general to be taking Catherine around on a tour and be like, and look at this giant mirror that I had imported from Venice. I have... 12 Venetian mirrors in case you <laughs> wanted to count. Seems like
0: something he would say. <laughs> well, and this and this idea of kind of like multiplying your wealth and everything, it is creating an illusion. Um, it reflects back whatever luxuries are near it. And so think of the Hall of Mirrors in the Palace of Versailles, where the mirrors seem to bring the outdoors inside while simultaneously making the hall seem twice as large. That's kind of that's kind of why mirrors have this wealthy signifying going on, as well as kind of the illusion of creating additional wealth. And Sir Walter is definitely into maintaining an illusion or even just a (laughs) self-delusion of his own importance and affluence.
1: Kaplan seems to point to this kind of illusion by stating that, quote, as Sir Walter's symbol, the looking glass defines the narcissism of the man, a father who is so self-absorbed that he cannot see to the needs of his children or to the upkeep of the estate. Again, he is Narcissus at the pool, right? He's mm-hmm. just like, I'm so busy admiring myself. Yeah. I mean, it's it's,
0: it's just so accurate to his character, the way that Austen has created it. And this kind of leads us to that connection between Sir Walter's mirrors and his personal vanity. In her article, Persuasion and Persuadability, When Vanity is a Virtue, Inger Singrun Brody writes, quote, Sir Walter's desire for admiration leads him to assume that even outside his dressing room, in the wide expanses of Bath or even London, all eyes are constantly observing him and his minutest actions. Of course, the joke is that, just like in his dressing room, all the eyes are his own.
1: So true. So true. I love it. Yeah. Like, oh, look at all these people who are admiring me. Oh, wait. That's my reflection. It's just me admiring That's myself. That's me. Mm-hmm. A great example of him thinking that everybody is paying attention to him would be when he's worried that people will notice that he hung out with Mister Elliot at Tattersall's, or his need to be in public was Lady Dalrymple.
0: Yeah, just he's like everyone is watching. They they all need to know what's going on with my world, and so I have to present it this way. And it, he he has no idea how much people don't care.
1: Yeah. I mean, he in his mind, he is like an A-list celebrity and thinks that everybody cares about him when in reality, nobody knows his name.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's also really obsessed, obviously, with his own like handsome face. And that's what's being reflected back to him all the time in his dressing room. And it's not random that it's in the room that is explicitly for dressing up, making him look good for going outside. Um, And this is where he's shaving and putting on his Gowlands lotion like this is all happening in one isolated location. It's it's not incidental.
1: It is for sure his favorite room in the house, which, again, you know, if he was able to also take care of everything else, I would not begrudge him, you know, having the space where he's like, hey, I feel good about myself. This is where I put on my lotions and, you know, get like that's great. But the fact that it's coming at the expense of his household, his children. All of his, like, main responsibilities that he Mm -hmm. has as this extremely privileged person is, that's where we start running into these issues. Yeah. There is also something almost sinister underneath the humor of thinking of Sir Walter preening in front of his many mirrors. Kaplan writes, quote, what is reflected back to the man is a vision hermetically sealed off from truth, the same vision that he gleans from the pages of the baronetage. In both the book and the mirror, Sir Walter sees... A very fine man, whose heritage and bearing give him the pride of place. What glitters back at him is a case study in self-obsession.
0: I love this description, especially the part that says hermetically sealed off from truth, mm-hmm. because it really okay. Is it just me, or does this give off some serious portrait of Dorian Gray? Behind? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's it's kind of fitting, right? It's it's it definitely fits with Sir Walter's own obsession with his prolonged good looks. And it also fits with Austen's larger commentary on what she perceives as, like, the decline of the aristocracy. They're all pretending everything's fine and shiny on the surface. All the while, men like Admiral Croft and Captain Wentworth are the ones with real money. Like, there's this decay that's happening while they're pretending that everything is fine on the surface. Yeah. And that is a really incredibly compact kind of metaphor there.
1: It's sort of giving, like, some Miss Havisham vibes, you know? Oh, yeah. We're just going to freeze this moment, and we're just Uh going to be like this forever. Nothing's going to happen. It's all good. Again, in a way that is very unhealthy and just ignoring the reality of everything that needs to be (laughs) happening around him. So that makes it all the more fitting that we only find out about Sir Walter's mirrors because Admiral Croft is actively removing them and replacing them with his single, relatively small shaving glass. This would have been roughly the equivalent of a handheld or countertop mirror today. According to Kaplan, with the introduction of Admiral Croft's little shaving glass, quote, Austin has captured the essence of meritocracy. She shows how the simplicity of the new men of action has replaced the sham elegance of the landed gentry. And I think Nina Auerbach uh, just puts
0: kind of the perfect cherry on top of that description when she writes in her article, Oh, Brave New World, Evolution and Revolution in Persuasion, writing that Admiral Croft symbolically strips away Sir Walter's mirrors, thus purifying Kellynch of its stagnant self-enclosure.
1: He has stripped away the mirrors. He's also living in this house that Sir Walter can no longer afford to keep up, but still has a lot of kind of unhealthy pride. Yeah. I think one of the things I do really love, too, is that there is no sort of revelation for Sir Walter. Like, there is technically a reckoning in the sense that he does have to leave behind Kellynch and his beloved dressing room, right? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. there's never kind of a revelation along with that of like, oh, I wonder if I had something to do with that. No self-awareness at all. And one of the things that I love is that even to the point where later in the novel, when they're in Bath and Charles and Mary come to town, Sir Walter and Elizabeth really expect them to admire all their furnishings, admire all their mirrors, like... Expecting oohs and ahs. And you can just imagine their guests are here and you have to walk around and be like, ooh, great mirrors, ooh, love the new china, and... (laughs) again, like they're still in this place of what is most important is what kind of things they have around them to sort of show off how wealthy and important they are. Yeah. Okay. So we've got mirrors. This is all very visual. This seems like something that you could really do a lot with in an adaptation.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You you would definitely want to lean into this. And I think the adaptations do some really fun things with this. So the most recent adaptation of Persuasion literally introduces Sir Walter while he's standing in front of a full-length mirror, and the voiceover from Anne says he never met a reflective surface he didn't like. And it's just like, okay, okay, that fits. That fits the vibe, absolutely. I laughed. But I also, I have to say, I love in the 95 adaptation, there is a scene where they're still talking about having to move to Bath. It's very early in the in the, in the film. And Colin Redgrave, who plays Sir Walter, is sitting at dinner and he pulls out, like, there's a knife, a dinner knife, and he starts to, like, check his reflection and, like, starts to fix his hair while he's at dinner and talking. Like, he's so perfect. So obsessed that he can't even go through dinner without checking out his reflection. And I just,
1: that is exquisite detail. It's a perfect shorthand for him and his character, you know? Yeah. Sir Walter and mirrors, those two things go together. Yeah.
0: And it's such a small moment, but it's just, it encapsulates so much.
1: Well, if you have any tales of mirrors or, I don't know, experiences with carnival funhouses to share with us. I was going to say, have you, have you ever been trapped in one? <laughs> yes, exactly. We would love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And we also just wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who has been leaving us some very lovely reviews online, on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, thank you. It's very, very, very much appreciated. Always. And stay tuned for next
0: episode, where we will be talking about Harriet's sore throat, with Dr. Rena
1: Jones. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.